We hope that uh, it's been entertaining. It's been informative. It's been a thing. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to AT Banter, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything regarding the world of assistive technology. With our hosts, Steve Barkley, Rob Minot, and Ryan Fleury. Now, let's banter. Hey, and welcome to yet another episode of AT Banter. I am Rob Minot, and with me today is Steve Barkley. Hello. And not Ryan Fleury. Ryan Flurry is right now. He's got his feet up somewhere, probably in his living room. He's probably being distracted by the ghost of Christmas past right now. Probably, yeah. Is that like a euphemism for alcohol? Um, could be. <laughs> <laughs> but he's at home. He's on vacation this week, and we have a special guest in the studio today. We have Dr. Gary Birch, who is the executive director of the Neil Squire Society. He's come in to the wilds of Burnaby. Wait, no, I guess you work in the wilds of Burnaby, don't you? I do, yes. All right. Well, so there you go. He's a neighbor. Uh, Gary, thanks for coming in. Thank you. I uh, look forward to having a chat with you guys today. So now you you and Gary, you guys kind of go back a ways, don't you? Oh, we've crossed trails a number of times over the years. I don't know. How long have you been with Neil Squire Society, Gary? Well, I've actually been with the Neil Squire Society before we were incorporated, so over well over 30 years now. Wow. And I go back with Aroga for 25, so. Wow. So yeah, so we've crossed paths many times, yep. I guess. So, I guess, well, let's just start out. What, what can you tell us? What What is the Neil Squire Society and what do they do? Well, the Neil Squire Society is a national not-for-profit society, and uh, we use knowledge, technology, and passion to empower Canadians with disabilities. It all began way back uh, with a young man named Neil Squire, who had a spinal cord injury very high up, and uh, back in, this would be about 1982-ish, and... um, uh, trying to think how many details you need, but uh, he got connected with uh, the founder of the Neil Squire Society, a man named Bill Cameron, uh, who was um, very involved in technology uh, out of Triumph and uh, wanted to see Neil do more than just lie in a hospital bed. And uh, I met Bill Cameron as I was finishing off my undergrad in electrical engineering, and he was looking for volunteers to work with him to help Neil use an Apple IIe computer. and um, State of the art. Well, it was in those days, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, it had a whole 64K RAM in it. <laughs> Massive. <laughs> and uh, I was excited this opportunity. And my As the summer came, I was a summer. I worked uh, that summer, I think it was about 80. Yeah, it would have been 1981, in fact. And uh, me and a couple others worked with Neil and, uh, he learned how to use Morse code, zip and puff switch, puff for a dot, zip for a dash, to fully control his Apple IIe computer. And, and by the end of the summer, he was doing fantastically. And uh, I was looking at, in those days, the best, you know, if you weren't at school, you did correspondence. <laughs> and he started a correspondence 
course at university and we kind of thought wow he's done and he's on his way and that was a pretty cool summer turns out though that a lot of other people who had severe disabilities saw what neil was doing and wanted to uh do likewise and uh long story short it turned into the neil squire society so now, you guys were the original developers of the Jouse, um, the mouth control joystick with uh, Sipuff for Morse code uh, through it as well, and a, and a bite switch around it as well, as I recall, the, the original. Wow, good uh, memory. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, from the very, you know, as the Neil Squire Society grew, we always had um, uh, uh, an R&D group. It's been in, down to two or three people at a time, and sometimes it's been as big as 15 or so people. Um, working on various interface devices to help people with disabilities use primarily computer-based technologies. And uh, as DOS got phased out and Windows came into being, uh, we had a number of uh, mostly in those days high-level quadriplegics that were doing really well with DOS. And as soon as the Windows came out, they had no way of navigating the, uh, the graphical user interface. And so we developed the JAWS which allowed a quadriplegic to, um, it, it's just a joystick that fit in the mouth to move the cursor around and there was a sip and puff. The shaft of the joust, I mean of the joystick, um, was hollow and allowed them to do sip and puff, both to click and drag and do all those kinds of functions as well as for those that use Morse code, they could also use the same device to do Morse code. Nowadays that's rare, people still use the joust it's licensed and sold by a company called CompuSult in uh, Newfoundland. Um, most people, though, today, uh, because voice recognition input has got so much better and is relatively inexpensive, most people go that way. Right. But, yeah, that was uh, a long time ago and still sold today, so it's kind of fun to look back see some success there yeah. yeah yeah and it's in its uh third generation now i think isn't it yeah, yeah. uh they've redesigned it uh they being copy sold it's redesigned it a few times uh take advantage of newer technologies and cheaper ways of building it etc right and there's actually a lot of a lot of really interesting things sort of on the horizon in terms of alternate access um you know we did a show not too long ago um about um BCIs, right? But the brain computer interfaces and sort of some of the some of the cutting edge stuff that they're they're doing on that. Have you guys th thought about any of that stuff or, or what's what's your general opinion of Well, I don't know if you were reading my bio or not, but that sounds like a leading question. Uh, <laughs> when I did my PhD in electrical engineering, that's exactly what I did. Uh, I would have been back in uh, uh, yeah, between 83 and 88. I started working on um, measuring signals from the brain using EEG with the with the um, desire to develop a, an interface that uh, could use the signals directly from the brain to control devices. And I thought that would be the ultimate interface. And I did my PhD on that topic. Oh. And then after that, uh, I and still am to this day an adjunct professor out at electrical engineering at um, electrical and computer engineering now at UBC, and uh, I've kind of um, wound it down now, but for many years I had a number of grad students that continued my work. So I was very involved with brain-computer interface, and I 
I, you know, you can see a lot of hype on the media about it. Yeah. Um, I, there's still a lot of big challenges before it's going to be really usable on a practical day to day level. And there's still, you know, approaches where they're measuring signals like I did off the surface of the scalp. And there's some investigators, particularly in the States that are going right into below the scalp, right into the cortex. Right. There's some real upsides and downsides to that approach as well. But I, I expect someday that will be a very viable interface and probably be used by able-bodied people too for certain. But it's hard to say how I, – I think it's still quite a ways off. Right. But you see some media that makes you think that it's sooner than than uh, than that. But I would, I would not be too – I want to be hopeful, but I don't want people in the short term to think that, you know, brain-computer interface is something going to be practical in the near term. Yeah, I think some a lot of the hype you see people controlling different devices with these head-worn systems, and uh, what they don't tell you is that they, you know, had to, you know, apply a gel, and they have to reapply the gel every so often to keep the contact to the scalp, and um, yeah. that's it's just not a, a it's not a practical technology yet. Yeah, and even then, uh, and and there has been some, and that's interesting you bring up that issue because there's been some great work. Uh, just reading up on it on so-called dry electrodes that don't need the gel. Oh, yeah. And for a long time, people have been working on those. But recently, I've seen some reasonably priced electrodes that do seem to function fairly well that don't require the gel. So those are some of the issues that need to be overcome. But still, when you see those little video clips, you don't see what happens in the times it didn't work so well. And and often there's a thing with brain-computer interface. It's like a lot of interface scenarios like what happens when a person's not trying to control? It's kind of like a problem with voice recognition. If you leave your voice recognition on and and then you answer a phone call from your mom, then it types out all the stuff. You, yeah. you know, yeah. so, you know, how does a brain-computer interface know when to control and when to ignore? And uh, right. so when they show you the clip of it controlling something, that's great, but you like to see what's going on when they're just sitting there thinking about something else and, yeah, watching the robotic arm move all around. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but uh, you know, someday, and you know, that's the exciting part is, you know, technology has always got the potential to be a real enabler. And uh, the thing I talk a lot about these days is it's also got the potential to be new barriers because as new technology comes out, often not very much thought, if any, has been given to um, whether something would be accessible and goes right back to that example around the jouse when dos came out i mean sorry when windows came out to replace dos uh, no one had a thought of how that would put people with disabilities behind not only did it really put people with limited mobility issues way behind it it really wiped out uh, people who have low vision or were blind yeah. um it was a completely new world and in some ways i'm not sure they've completely got you know, there's some pretty sophisticated screen readers and stuff now, but um, yeah, there's a steep learning curve to the steep to learning curve. And, sorts of but anyways, so you know, as technology evolves, it sometimes also brings new barriers, and right. so I'm a big advocate of thinking through those barriers first as, before the technology is launched. Right. So, like, what what is the actual barrier to to a real workable, practical, say, BCI? 
That's a long. Yeah, the answer's long. <laughs> I can give it to you. I'll, I'll probably put eighty percent of your audience to sleep. But it, <laughs> it, there's still what I call signal processing issues. You know, because you're measuring a lot of signal from the brain, and you have to figure out which part is the part you need and the parts that you just because a lot going on in the brain all the time, right? Right. So there's that problem, and there's just the practical problems that uh, Steve was talking about in terms of. How do you actually measure the signals and do it in a way that's sustainable? Because after a while, some of these electrodes start to hurt the skin and that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of the systems still require a lot of very, um, uh, like a technician to sort of set them up and tweak them and and get the parameters set optimally. So there's it's just a lot of little problems that need to be solved. Um, just no, and they cross a number of boundaries. So, got it. Yeah. And so, a lot of these headsets that are on the market now, like the emotive headset that we talked about, from what from what I understand from my reading is that the main problem with with those is that the EEG it's it's very surface level readings, and so you you have limited control. Is that right? Yeah, I'm trying to. There's a few commercial ones out there. Most of the, I think that one, Emotive, is it? Yeah, it's uh, out of Australia, I believe. Yeah, you have to be careful. Like a lot of them are, you know, they got the electrodes mostly over the forehead and right. around the eyes and stuff. So you can pick up other biological signals, like eye movement in particular, is very easy to measure. So and uh, and then muscle movement around the eyes and. Facial muscles, EMG, they call it, shows up really. They're all an order, an order magnitude larger than the EEG. So um, that's actually a problem because that actually contaminates the EEG right. signal. So, but people have learned to get control out of that. But they're not actually using the EEG. They're using, they're learning to move their eyes in a certain way, or they're learning to squint to control with muscles and stuff. So they're they're getting control, but they're not really using EEG in a lot of these cases. Um, there is something that is still intended for uh, researchers and that kind of thing, but as the price points come down a lot and 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 really is able to to measure in a better way the EEG signal, and it's something called Open BCI. Mm-hmm. So if people are really interested, I would Google Open BCI. I'm surprised. Frankly, just how well it does, and uh, and how the price points come down on that. Again, though, it's really not intended for um, users yet. It's still right. aimed at researchers who want to get involved. But even for that set, like, are there are there access applications that that you could use, say, for for a headset that could track? Because if you can, if it could track stuff like blinks or eye movement, could you not sort of translate that into? some sort of um, alternate access device as opposed to like um, eye gaze systems or? Well, the short answer is absolutely. I mean, they've been measuring eye movement as a way of trying to control devices for a long time. And it's, again, there's a big calibration issue with eye movement and stuff. It gets a bit technical. Right. Um, and you do need the same electrodes. Um, so the eye gaze has actually, I think, become more, especially now they're starting to get the price point of the eye gaze down. But both eye gaze and and uh, measuring eye movement and even muscle movement, the trouble with that is 
like I was explaining with the BCI, when you have unintentional eye movement and unintentional yeah. movement, um, you can sometimes, like say you're controlling the cursor, suddenly the cursor's way off the screen. You didn't mean it to. You just... We're daydreaming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or maybe you're trying to read what was on the screen or something. You know, so, it, yeah. Uh, I, I guess it would, it would kind of overcomplicate things. I mean, if you we, there, there are existing, you know, eye gaze systems out there that work perfectly fine. Yes. Yeah. They tend to be expensive, the, the ones that are really worth it. But if you really need it, uh, I think a good eye gaze is the better way to go. You got nothing attached to your face, right? Um, and uh, they've got you know some approaches to deal with what I was just talking about, mostly dwell and that kind of stuff. Or someone can use a switch, um, use a single switch to click or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Um, we did a, a show recently with. Um a fellow who's a developer of a product called the Smile Mouse. Have you seen that one? No, I don't think I have. Yeah, it uh, uses a webcam. It tracks your head movement, and it works a lot like, you know, the systems where you're wearing a, a dog. Oh, okay. Sure. It's but like it's, a head tracker bit. Yeah, but it's just tracking head movement, and yeah. when you want to click, you just smile. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, pretty- no, no. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff, and, and because the technology is becoming so accessible and so relatively inexpensive, you're seeing, I don't even want to call them hobbyists, but they're technology people that just, or people that are interested in using technology. And yeah, they're doing some clever things. Um, um, sometimes, not always, they don't always understand the whole context of the problem they're trying to solve, but uh, still very creative, innovative stuff. And uh and it's very individual, you know, something like the small mouse might work really well for someone and another person might find it very frustrating. So that's another thing we really believe at, you know, Squire Society and I think you guys at Aroka practice the same thing. It's very much about, you know, making sure the user's at the center of, of these kind of things and making sure the user gets the kind of technology that works best for them in their context of their life. Yeah. Yeah. What what other products has Neil Squire developed? I know you guys have done a lot more than even the ones that I've seen. Well, we've worked on a lot of devices and prototypes, not all of which have made it commercially. <laughs> In the early uh, days, we did a lot of software around uh, um, scanning software and um, uh, Morse code and uh, that kind of thing. Um, more recently, um, for a while there, we had a very successful product and campaign, actually. It's called Speech Assisted Reading and Writing, which was a whole software literacy package that we developed in collaboration with what was then Capilano College and their adult literacy program. And it was a particularly good program at that. This was probably somewhere in the 90s. I'm losing track now. Um, where um, people would disabilities could who who needed to get their basic literacy skills up uh could use um uh, we called it sarah speech assisted reading and writing to uh work on their literacy and uh it was a very successful well-used program until the sort of community college system caught up and was able to accommodate those kind of folks right in their own colleges so it's kind of no longer used, but that was a very successful program for a long time. Um, more recently, because of the uh, the rapid um, pace of change of technology, 
we sometimes do we prototype proof of concepts um but then we try to work with industry or other partners um to get that technology out and or um try to work with the mainstream manufacturers that are say developing um uh, smartphones and that kind of thing um to ensure that certain standards uh, uh input output standards like uh USB connections on a smartphone you see a USB on a, a lot of smartphones but that might just be a charging port but on some phones it might be a true USB where you can actually then connect up an assistive technology like a um some other kind of mouse like a Jaws or something now we're working on called a lip sync which is just a smaller portable version of that um so it's more trying to make rather than trying to develop technology um because it's changing so fast we found that we would develop a technology and then the platform itself would change so quickly right. that um we backed away not completely but we have backed away from the retrofit kind of model because by the time you get a retrofit solution whatever you're trying to interface has changed and so you're back to the yeah so that was kind of a hard lesson that we went through and now we're you know we, we work with regulatory bodies we work with um, industry as much as we can to try to ensure that the technology comes out either accessible from the get-go or is designed such it could be easily made accessible right yeah you're not alone in that uh, issue of retrofitting platforms uh, oh no it's been a big the, problem yeah, yeah a lot of the augmentative communication companies went to mainstream tablets as part of their communication solutions and it was just a disaster because the product cycles are six months and then they've got to you know come up with a new case and come up with you know new interfaces and yep it's uh, yeah no it's it's created a whole new issue of problems yes yeah <laughs> um but yeah, and and the latest thing that we're working on is, uh, I encourage you if you're interested to go to our website to find more about it. But we developed some a few years ago something called a lip sync, which we developed as a much more portable version of the Jaws, and uh, we couldn't find a path to get it commercialized. And then recently we had an opportunity with Google, with one of their Google competitions. Uh, out of the states and uh, so we've we've got this grant now from google to work on making the lip sync open source and making use of um and this is a, a whole world that i'm not that familiar with but all the young folks around me seem to be very but the maker communities and maker right. hackathons and that kind of stuff so right we're we're design we've redesigned it so it's going to be very easily built on 3d printers and simplified the electronics so that um you know these maker clubs and that kind of stuff can make these things um much more cheaply and locally and ho hopefully can with the actual person that needs it connected to them so not only they're getting the device made but they're getting it made and then set up for them in, in a way that they can use it nice. and uh so we're kind of excited. We, it's kind of like the open source software and how that's been a real uh, step forward for a lot of people with disabilities because the soft software that used to be very expensive or you have to 
have a dedicated piece of hardware. The open source software has been very helpful in many cases, but there's hasn't been the equivalent for the hardware. So we're we're looking at this as kind of like the open source hardware model. And uh, interesting, yeah. So we're very excited about this because we think it could it could be a big a big important new way of getting um, hardware assistive technology out to people, particularly those who can't afford the mainstream kind of assistive technologies. Right. Now you've you've got a maker program going on at uh, Neil Squire now, don't you? Well, that would be it. Oh, that is. Yeah, okay. it, yeah. It's, it's just and around that. Oh, yeah. Well, right now it's focused on the the lip sync. We're we're looking at opportunities to broaden that model, and we're not the only ones. There's there's lots of stuff out there on the internet where you can find printer code to uh, print various assistive technologies. What what I think the we like to see is a more kind of uh, coordinated, vetted approach where people with disabilities have actually tried certain designs and and refined and have a, a place where people can go and find these uh, designs. And then, of course, the beauty is every maker club has got the ability to innovate and find new solutions. And it's kind of like that open source model. And they will give that back. Hey, we found a better way of doing this. And sending it out to the community and everyone benefits but nice it'd be interesting to see where it goes for sure it could be quite exciting yeah indeed um one of the things i wanted to ask you about was uh, your work with the united nations yeah that's been very very exciting and uh um very honored to be involved um it was this past june june um 2016 i had i was asked uh, by the government not to go to represent them but to go I was funded by the government to go down and represent um, Canadians with disabilities uh, at the UN uh, for the week where they were reviewing the UN convention on the rights of persons with disabilities and um, I think they do it every year but every year they they focus on different themes and this year, one of the themes that we're focusing on was technology, and they did that, which is very cool because technology is actually written right into the UN convention, which I was very happy to see. It's a very good convention, actually. And uh, I was there about four years prior when they did the first sort of review of the te technology. The first time there, it was, it was, wow, there's a lot going on. It's very political. It's very... It's very, um, and, uh, yeah, there's sort of very diplomatic rules of engagement and lots of, lots of meetings that you wonder if anything's really getting accomplished, but, uh, there's a lot of these, what they call side events, which are really just smaller meetings and some really good discussions take, take place there. And then when I went back this June in 2016, I really started to see how it has really engaged a lot of countries around the world, a lot of developing countries, and they're they're really making some interesting strides, you know. So I, I came away this time feeling much more like, wow, this convention is really having some some real effect. And uh, um, and I had the honor actually of being um, elected by my peers to chair a roundtable on the topic of assistive technology and technology. And uh, I thought that was very cool to be 
uh, leading the roundtable uh, panel. And uh, what I didn't realize, it was actually in the main, one of the main auditoriums with all the various reps from the various countries were there, and as well as what they call, uh, what they call it, um, social society, civil civil society, which is really what they call the NGOs that are there. And so it was in this big auditorium, and after all the panelists had said their their uh, little presentations around tech technology, it was my job to then call on the different countries who wanted to make comments or interventions so it's kind of fun to recognize australia the year next and <laughs> i had all these diplomats whispering in my ear you gotta recognize france next or i actually don't remember which but it's there's there's all this kind of politicking going on in the background a bit of a pecking order oh yeah and you know there's a there's an ambassador from so-and-so here so he's got to go first <laughs> but it was you know so that that was just kind of fun uh but um yeah, I I came away feeling like it's hard to say what effect it's really having in Canada, um, uh, to be very honest. But you can see it's really having some effect in some of the other countries around the world. Yeah. Right. When you say technology is represented in the convention, what does that actually mean? How is it represented? Yeah, okay. I should be able to tell you uh, exactly what section, et cetera. It comes under the accessibility section, but it makes very explicit reference to Technology and I and ICT information and communication technologies in particular need to be accessible. And uh, so, just the recognition that that's part of the accessibility lens uh, includes technology in a very clear way. I think it's just a real good step forward. And you know, and I say it's. Uh, I said, you know, I'm not sure what difference is making in Canada. It is because it's got government focused on some of these, I, these, these issues for sure. Um, I just think that because we're already trying to work on a lot of these issues, it's a little more subtle, and and I'm now seeing more leverage points where I think the UN Convention in Canada is actually helping as well. But I think in some of these countries that we're starting almost from really nowhere in some cases. Um, it's just easier to see the progress that's made for them. So um, that, that segues nicely into um, your work with the Canadians with Disabilities Act. Right. Yeah. Um, Minister Quattro, Carla Quattro, um, in her mandate letter, she's the Minister of Sport and Persons with Disabilities, uh, from the Prime Minister in her mandate letter was to put together a disability, a Canadians with Disabilities Act, which she refers to as renamed as, a, oh, um, it's National Accessibilities Act, I think is the working title right now. And just trying to put more of the focus on accessibility in the broadest sense of the term, uh, rather than sort of focusing on disability. I think that's her thinking behind that. So it's just a more inclusive kind of way of looking at it. And and not putting the problem on the disability, but putting the it's more of the issue of how do we make the our country more inclusive and accessible. And so right now they're in the consultation stages. They've been holding public consultations all across Canada. They've also been having some focus consultations on specific topics. And uh, actually, if you haven't been involved, you can go to the website. Um, I'm sure if you go to 
Um, well, I'm sure if you just Google the Canadian Disabilities Act or something like that, it would come up. I think uh, there's the Office of Disability Issues federally. I'm sure there's a link on that page, and you can go on to the website there, and uh, and uh, there's two or three, I think, options for you to get your your two cents in, and and they're really encouraging that, and they're really listening. I I really get the sense that uh, they're listening very carefully, and really trying to figure out what they can do. Um, there are jurisdictional issues of what a federal act can do versus say maybe a provincial act or something like that. So right. it gets kind of technical, but I think we're going to see some, I, there appears to be some real dedication and some real desire to see something real come out of this. So I'm quite excited and the engagement so far has been very encouraging. And in, in, I guess in some jurisdictions like Ontario, they already have a disabilities act in place. Uh, yep. Yeah. And you know, there's, I've heard great things and I've heard a lot of criticisms about it too, but I, I think that's the way that kind of legislation works. And I think in Canada with the kind of federalism we have, we need both. We need a federal act and we need ultimately similar acts, hopefully not too different in all the provinces because right. um, just because different, you know, issues around disability and accessibility and inclusion come under different jurisdictions. So, um, we need some harmonization and and uh, uh, coordination, I guess, right. along those things. But I think the federal government can show a lot of leadership by putting this into place. And, you know, if it goes well, it should dovetail nicely with the, the act in Ontario. And there's a, and there's now an act. Uh, um, uh, Manitoba has one, I believe. There's one in Manitoba. And Nova, Nova Scotia has definitely got, they've tabled their legislation. It's very close to, I think, being... Uh, it may even be passed or it's about to be passed. So it's it's happening. And uh, um, I think that's going to be the new landscape for Canada, hopefully, is strong federal legislation that dovetails nicely with provincial legislations that uh, ensure that uh, inclusion and accessibility is there for all persons with disabilities. Yeah, I mean, what's your, what's your general feeling? Like, I, I know for me... You know, I feel like the last five years, um, there's there's been some real strides in in terms of conversations about inclusion and and getting traction on universal design, much more so than in the past twenty. I mean, would you agree with that? There's definitely more discussion, but some of the deep rooted issues that I've seen over my thirty plus years are still there. Yeah. You know, individuals not wanting to identify as a person either with a disability or even a person that is running into barriers. Uh, some of that's are often fear-based and that they're going to get some repercussion, some discrimination. Like, you know, I've seen programs that are ready and willing and able to help people with disabilities or, or people that may not even identify as being people with disabilities but are truly running into barriers in the workplace and they're too afraid to say anything about it because they're afraid that if they do, there might be repercussions. And right. Sometimes that's actually not true. Um, um, the employer might be super supportive. They're just... So, yeah, so there's those issues. There's still employers that... Have, there's a lot of employers, you know, that are still really 
they're starting to talk a lot more about employment and that kind of stuff, but they really haven't. There, there are some great examples of employers out there that are doing it really well, but there's a lot of employers that are still, I think they want to do it and they're starting to understand that there's a whole business case to it as well. Right. A positive business case, but it, you know, we're still fighting some pretty fundamental myths and misconceptions and those kind of things. So the discussion's good and right. I, I agree with you. I think there's more going on and there's more more talk about universal design and hiring people with disabilities and all that kind of stuff. But we still got to push past that right. attitudinal. I think it's probably one of the key pieces still to go. Right. Yeah. So I hope all this discussion, like you pointed out, because I think it is happening more, does does lead to some real change, you know. And after being involved in this field for over 30 plus years, sometimes it's very hard not to get too jaded about some of these things. But I, I still do my best to look at the, you know, the positives that are going out there and try to build on those. Yeah, and I think that one of the key differences right now is it's so much easier for people to build like online communities and, and have these online discussions than it has been like, but you know, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all these, all these avenues that people have to make their voice heard um, more, more and more people with disabilities are sort of banding together or they're entering into things like YouTube and, and having, you know, very successful, popular YouTube channels where they're able to sort of, um, eliminate misconceptions and advocate for themselves and you know that's certainly different than 10 years ago yeah and i'm old enough to not to admit that i don't fully understand (laughs) the power of all this but i have seen some examples of that yeah Yeah. i really have um right just you know people getting their message across better and more grassroots um voices getting heard and Right to you know, uh, you know, if someone goes to a place of business and doesn't get the kind of accessibility or service they think is appropriate, you know, they can start talking about it on some yep. sort of social media. And right. I've seen action happen way faster than that than I have through any human rights legislation or anything. It's like, yep. sure. okay, wait a minute, uh, give me a call, we'll see if you can't fix that. You know, yeah, <laughs> no one likes the bad uh, social media out there, so. That's true. Yeah, so it is powerful. And it's hard for me to know anyways uh, what impact that's had, but I'm sure it's had a a significant impact. We we haven't really touched on the at-work program all that much. Um, Well, yeah, uh, the Neil Squire Society was uh, very pleased and um, fortunate to um, win a contract with the BC provincial government to carry out a, um, a project called Technology at Work. And uh, it's designed to help those with disabilities who are experiencing a workplace barrier at work. So people that are currently working or volunteering or those that have um, a solid job offer or volunteer um, opportunity and they need technology or other accommodations so that they can... um, continue to do their work effectively and in the most productive way possible. Um, so that can be someone that is at work and has maybe worked for quite a while and starting to acquire a disability either through illness or repetitive strain or back injury or, or vision starting to go or 
and you know is experiencing those kind of barriers um, we can help with those we have money to resources to to help both the employer and the employee and uh, depending upon the situation and of um, the employer um, uh, we ask them to contribute to the solution as well and uh, it's a very exciting program because up until this program I wasn't aware of a program that that actually helps those who are currently in the workforce. There are programs around uh, through WorkBC where someone looking for work can get that kind of support, but someone that's actually working um, was actually not eligible for that. Well, there are some circumstances they could have been, but generally not. So uh, this, this way we can be proactive with people uh, who are in the workplace and for whatever reason starting to experience workplace barriers and uh, help them. So I uh, encourage people to go to our website and find out more about that as well. And because uh, I think it's a, a, you know, an important uh, service that uh, many people can take advantage of. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about your Paralympic career. My Paralympic career. Huh. Well, um, I was injured back in 1975 and, uh, uh, just finishing high, I just finished high school and was a very active kid. Did all the high school sports, and as I was going through rehab, uh, people from the wheelchair sports community connected with me, and it was a great way to get reengaged and being physically active, and uh, and just also being active in the world generally, you know. And um, so I really enjoyed it. I got involved and. And, you know, track and swimming and um, field, as they call it. And uh, did well enough that I made the Canadian team. And in 1980, had the opportunity to go to the Olympics, which were in Holland that year. And I I won a silver in track and uh, two bronze medals in the pool. Nice. Yeah, so... Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great chapter of my life. And uh, actually, when I got back from the Olympics, there was a, a new game that was getting started for quadriplegics um, who weren't able to play basketball, wheelchair basketball. And in those days, we called it murder ball. Uh, yes. Right. And it's still, I think, a better name for it. But uh, yeah. Yeah. it's <laughs> now known as watched it. wheelchair rugby. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was one of the first. I wasn't obviously the one that invented it, but I was one of the first to play it. Oh, my God. And I had a lot of fun in it. Uh, um, yeah, until I got so involved in my graduate work at UBC, I think I finally backed away from that too, but that was a lot of fun. Um, it also got a little scary near the end, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone's, if, 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 if you ever haven't seen even a little bit of it, it's worth pulling up on YouTube and oh, watching some of these guys going at it. Oh yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. There's no, uh, no holds barred in that sport. Yeah. It's a full on, uh masochistic yeah it really is <laughs> but i made a made a lot of good friends from those days and still have them and yeah it was great awesome um so is there i don't know is there a, a technology or a even just a product that's come out in the last little while that you're really excited about or that you really feel like is a little bit of a game changer it's probably not all that new in fact, I just saw 
a commercial where these millenniums are talking something about, you know, nothing's changed on these smartphones for 10 years. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I still think of them as these incredible. But, you know, from an engineering point of view, the kind of technology that's in those things and the cost is actually, given what's in those things, is just amazingly low. And right. The potential um, for people with disabilities, I think we've only just started to tap the real potential of, of those. You know, uh, the Apple products got the voiceover, which is uh, for many people who are blind. They love that interface and it's right. really opened up a lot of, you know, and they're using, you know, uh, Braille readers and all sorts of things to connect by Bluetooth. Uh, it's got the ability, you know, you can use it to buy things and do um e-commerce which i think and for some people is very you know much easier than trying to deal with money and wondering who are getting ripped off and all that kind of stuff and ryan in our office is probably amazon's biggest customer yeah (laughs) yeah yeah and then you know um it's got the ability to you know once your interface to it for someone with you know severe mobility impairment to use it to control their environment you know with, with the all the mainstream smart home stuff that's out there they can control their lights their doors their yes, television yeah. all through this one device you know so if you can get a good interface with that one device it then becomes what i call a gateway which interestingly enough years ago we built a gateway we called it way before anybody knew about even personal digital assistants which were kind of the forerunner to the smartphones we built this little terminal it was portable and a guy in a power wheelchair could move around his house and control different things and it was really well liked. We just couldn't figure out how to commercialize it. So really, this has come to that point where you have this one device that can be a gateway to a number of things, both within your home and outside your home. It's uh, not just a communication device, but it's a device that can allow you to do a whole whole host of things. That's right. I think Am- there's the Amazon Echo, I think, and that's the device that will sit there. It's voice activated, and you can, you can plug it into different environmental control yeah. systems. Um, and that there's another, and Google has one too. I think it's the Google, yeah, I don't remember the name Google, Google Home. Yeah, I might be wrong about that. But I, I mean, so there's a couple of products. Yeah, that are, well, there's that are, those are those are kind of standalone, right? Products. Um, there's a lot you can do through your actual smartphone. Right. Uh, I have not tried those. They look good on the commercials. Yeah. Um, I still wonder, do they sometimes hear commands when you don't mean them? <laughs> right and or don't hear a command when you really want it because you've got an emotion in your voice like something's like you need help and there's a fire there's <laughs> a fire yeah that was one of the common now maybe they've, they've beat that problem but that was one of the big problems with voice recognition and if you got too much emotion in your voice like help or, or call 911 or something like that it, it wouldn't recognize your voice like it would when you did it in a nice calm way so um Anyways, and then back background noise has also been a big problem that they don't often talk about. You got the TV blaring or the stereo blaring or whatever. Or right. fire raging in your kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> and you're going, call fire department. Call fire department. Please call fire department. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It, um, but, you know, they're slowly making that stuff better. But uh, uh, I haven't tried it. So, I, But that's the kind of technology that's going to not just make you know that what what's beautiful about that again it's mainstream yeah and so the cost will be way less and it just brings back the old the, the same thing i think i've talked about a few times today let's make sure this new mainstream technology is always an an enabler and not a new barrier yeah. right yeah 
I think they're getting better about it. I mean, Apple, well, Apple's always been very good with accessibility. Recently, you know, Microsoft seems to be trying to to gain some ground on them. They're they're really touting, you know, their their new update. They're really oh, yeah. touting how much mm. accessibility. Yeah. You see it in a lot of the tech companies, Google as well. Yeah. And frankly, some of that is because they recognize it's uh, both a market and I think they recognize it's an important thing to do. But I also think uh, some of the legislation in the states has nudged them in the right direction. Absolutely. But in a good way because it's nudged them and then I think they've seen the opportunity with the nudge to look for innovation and do some cool stuff with that. So, you know, what's often good for people with disabilities turns out to be really good for the mainstream as well. Absolutely. Yes. I know. think that that's what they're realizing. You know? Yeah. And yep. that lesson's been learned over and over and, it, and so you see that catching on. So, Well, you talked about that that group out there that doesn't, <clears throat> doesn't uh, self-identify as being disabled. Right. And there's there's a lot of them out there. My my mother's a prime example yeah. because she's got macular degeneration. Yep. She she does not view herself as being blind, but she she needs a CCTV to <laughs> to read anything. Right. Um and, you know, built-in features like magnification, speech output. Um, you know, once people learn that they're on there, they they turn them on. They they still don't have an identified problem, but <laughs> they're Absolutely. suddenly magnifying yeah, yeah. four times. Sometimes you have to be sure that those those features are there, but you, yeah. you're so right. Yeah. Yeah. And when they're more mainstream, they carry less stigma and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing it in uh, even in the classroom now, too. You know, a lot of, a lot oh, of yeah. kids with low vision are sitting there, you know, with their smartphone, snapping a picture of the, the board and then zooming in on it to. to yeah. Read. And now they're the uh, cool kids because they got some of the coolest technologies, right? Right. Yeah. It's really, really flipped from being the, the person with a really odd looking augmented communication device that's taking up half their wheelchair yeah. <laughs> to some, oh, I wish I had a cool uh, device that did that, too, kind of thing. So, yeah. I think it shifted that dynamic a little bit too, which is very, very cool. Yeah. The times, they are a-changing. Indeed. Oh, you got the Order of Canada. I didn't know you had the Order of Canada. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah, that was a super honor that came. Well, it always is because you're never, nominees are never supposed to know they've been nominated, right? So. It was uh, a super honor to be recognized, and especially when I've been around long enough that there's so many other people that I work with in the community that have dedicated their lives to trying to make things better for people with disabilities, and to be recognized for the work I've done is really um, amazing and uh, uh, humbling, really, and uh, especially when you consider the number of other people that have I think have done a, a astounding work as well and uh, haven't had the opportunity to be recognized in that way. But it's something I take great pride in. And, um, yeah, it's very, very, quite an honor to be named as a officer in the Order of Canada. Thanks. Sure. Yeah. I think if I had that, I'd be wearing the medal everywhere. <laughs> yeah, there's actually there's actually pretty well-defined protocols of when you can wear. Because I have a little one that's supposed to be on my 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 vest or like if I was in a suit jacket I'm always supposed to have it on oh really yeah it's just a little pin very few people know what it is and then of course the big metal uh, you know I don't get invited to very many events where I'm supposed to be wearing that yeah and they've got all these rules and regulations about when you can wear it and how to wear it and 
Is it mostly like state functions? Or? Yeah, black tie affairs. You know, right. I don't get, you know, with the prime minister or something like that. I haven't been to many of those. Yeah, yeah. They, they never invite me either. So. Yeah, yeah, I know me either. <laughs> Still waiting for that invite. That's right. It's yeah. in the mail. I know. Sorry, when when were you awarded that? What year? I think it was 2010. Don't hold me to that. Back to Rideau Hall and Michael Jean was the Governor General then, and uh, it was a very cool ceremony, and uh, and then a really cool dinner that night again back in Rideau Hall. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was definitely yeah. a highlight in my life, and I was able to have my, my wife and my son there as well, and Excellent. and actually some other friends and family at the actual ceremony. So, it was uh, definitely one of the highlights of my life, and uh, um, like I said, a real honor to be recognized that way. But I also recognize there's a lot of other people out there that have done amazing work for people with disabilities. And, be nice if they all got recognized in some way. Yeah. How how does the nomination process work for that? Who um, who gets to nominate people? Well, I believe it's an open it's an open process that if you know of anyone and there's a you go under the 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 governor general's website and there's a process you have to follow. It's fairly rigorous, and uh, then they go through quite a, a vetting process themselves, right? And um, I've been called upon since uh, if I've, you know, they asked me, do you know such and such a person? And if so, what would your input and recommendation be? Um, frankly, most of the time, I, I don't know the people they're asking me about. But uh, right. that's part of the, the vetting process that they go through. Right. Um, but to nominate someone, um, th I think there's a fairly clear process of how to go along yeah, I think it's a bit involved. There's a bit of work involved to it. And I have been involved in writing letters of support for some people who have been in the nomination process. But uh, very, very strict. I think you like would be disqualified if you let the nominee know even. So I had no idea. Like I just get this call out of the blue. And, uh, and then I couldn't tell anybody. They said, oh, <laughs> it's not official until it's announced, you know, on December such and such. So. Can't tell anybody. So, oh, that'd be torture. So I walked, yeah. So for about a month, I knew and I couldn't tell anybody. <laughs> that must have been killing you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on, but I, you know, it's as much as some of us that have been around for a while look back and think, man, we're still fighting the same battles. It's still something that I get really excited about every morning and pretty much every morning anyways. And I feel really blessed that I've been able to work in this area for so long, and I've had a lot of great opportunity for sure. Yeah, and it's too. It's got to be really rewarding too, because you're you're involved at you know with with so many people helping them overcome a lot of their barriers. Yeah, and it's it's really rewarding, I'm sure, to see that. Well, it's interesting you say that because yeah, you know, when you get kind of ground down because you're dealing with another piece of you could argue necessary or maybe not so necessary bureaucracy or whatever and you're kind of wondering if this is really worth it and then it's running into that person in the hallway who has just got some service or help from us and is saying gee you know you made just without this you know this made a huge difference in my life or 
I remember one story in particular with this guy with cerebral palsy. I, I don't think he ever believed he could really work. And uh, he was with us for a little while. And, and when he got his first job, and he came literally motoring down the hallway with his first paycheck. Oh. And he was so excited. <laughs> I'll never forget nice. that. But it's it's the, you know it's those little individual stories. And, and yeah, it's those that you go, okay, this is why we're here, right? And, and it, that's for sure what fuels it all. It's the individual stories. Yeah. 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 And I think we've all had a chance to see how certain interventions have made huge changes in people's lives. And it's fun to see that happen. Yeah. yeah. Where where does Neil Squire have offices now? Well, we've got um, our head office and sort of central BC office right here in Burnaby, um, and uh, we have an office in Regina, an office in Ottawa, an office in Fredericton, Moncton, and uh, recently we opened an office in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. So, and um, those are sort of his well. Except for uh, New Glasgow, that was an opportunity that happened for us in the Maritimes not too long ago. But the other ones are all kind of historical, uh, go way back to the roots of the organization where we had some s critical mass and it stayed. And, but we've done a lot of reaching out through partners and distance technologies. One of our key programs called Computer Comfort. Um, uh, not only do we do it on our on site in our offices. We do it by distance, and that's just a program where people can just get more comfortable using computers. And I always thought that would be a program that would die away. It was really one of the first programs of the Neil Squire Society, but it's just in demand today as it ever has been. And I think it's because of the evolving chain nature of the digital world, and there, people are always wanting to learn more. And it's 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 a very interesting program, and because of we can do it at a distance, and we figured out a way to have the tutors and the learners and at different locations connecting through the internet to, we've been able to spread that kind of service out uh, all across Canada actually and uh, then we've done a lot of our employment service work through partners in different parts of the country like in the interior we got two or three partners where we deliver we got a partner in uh, Victoria Likewise, um, you know, out of the other regional offices, we have similar uh, out of Regina. They've worked in many different um, uh, urban centers and smaller centers in Saskatchewan. In particular, it does some really interesting work in northern Saskatchewan. And uh, likewise, in the, in the Maritimes, reached out to all sorts of, uh, I think they're in every little and not so little city and town in New Brunswick in some way. So, yeah, uh, we we are learning how to go beyond the walls of our offices. And I'm not big on trying to set up new offices. If we want to expand our reach, I really believe in, in trying to partner and, and work with existing groups and existing places across Canada and bring whatever is value added into those. If there's an organization out there that wants to partner with Neil Squire Society, who who would they contact? Well, at the risk of getting an 800... E yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's but... okay, we don't have that many followers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, <really. laughs> okay, well... No, I mean, honest, probably, you know, there, there's info with Neil Squire, and that's watched very carefully, and there's there's two or three people that watch that carefully and make sure the, the emails get 
sent to the most appropriate people and failing that feel free to email me um and uh yeah i mean we're always open for the right opportunity to partner and uh and uh see the the ultimate goal of empowering persons with disabilities go forward so for sure the other program that the neil square society has is called working together and it's a program that we run nationally and it um it's designed to help those that want to um, get into the workforce or return to the workforce and uh, uh, have a self-identified, self-declared disability. And uh, we can help them both in terms of enhancing their employability skills and also helping them find work, uh, get out there and connect with employers and uh, find work opportunities. So that's a, a federally funded national program uh, that... Uh, if people are looking for that kind of assistance and uh, engagement, then again, go to our website and just Google Neil Squire Society and uh, you can find the Working Together program. And, and uh, it's a it's a form of support that we've been doing for probably well over 20-odd years in different forms. And it's sort of the best of what we've learned put into one program. Yes. Okay. And we'll link to that all in the show notes. We'll link to Tenio Squire and, and uh, the different programs that we've talked about today. Uh, all right. Well, fantastic. Well, I'd like to, thanks for stopping in, coming and see us. Well, I really appreciate this opportunity. Long overdue. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's always fun to talk about uh, technology and disability and other other opportunities for disability. So I welcome the opportunity this morning. Thank you very much. Awesome. No problem. And I'm sure we'll have you back. I'd love to come back. Got to have some more tea. Some more tea, and I'll hopefully be able to tell you just how great the whole lip sync uh, Google project's going because I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. That sounds awesome. Yeah, maybe we if, can dig in for when. And if people are interested, it. there's a on our website, there's actually, in addition to our regular e news bulletin that comes out every month or so, there's a more regular targeted little bulletin that comes out on the lip sync project for those that are really into the details of that project you can subscribe to that and that's that's a lot of fun too okay yeah awesome so thank you very much for having me all right excellent all right um wow that was that was really cool yeah i mean guys has so much going on i know i know he's so many so many committees so many different uh projects when does he find time to sleep it was interesting to hear somebody talk about bcis and and the eeg devices and stuff that knows what they're talking about because that stuff's really fascinating but i get the sense that a lot of it is marketing hype too right so it was interesting to hear that we're still a ways away from that because if you you you, you know you look at the marketing materials of that stuff they they want you to believe that you know thought control is almost here right and clearly not yeah well i mean you wonder sometimes when you see companies that are driven by venture capital, um, whether or not the communication that they're putting out there about their product is legitimate or if it's just hype. Right. And clearly, in this case, it's probably a lot of hype. Yeah. So it's unfortunate, too, because, you know, the the idea of having that brain interface is is really quite, uh, quite appealing, um, you know. When, once that happens, once it becomes effective and controllable, 
and they work through the technical glitches of it, it's going to be a pretty powerful it's, technology. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be a game changer uh, right up there with, you know, touch screens. Really, yeah. it's probably going to be the next jump. Um, I, I mean, I think personally, I think virtual reality and that are the two next real big jumps that that we're looking at. Maybe robotics as well. Um, you know, there's some pretty, pretty neat stuff going on there, but yeah, I think, uh, um, more than virtual reality, vir virtual reality to me, um, has certain applications, uh, particularly in terms of entertainment. Um, and there are some applications in terms of design, but I think for your average person out and about, uh, augmentative reality oh, is yeah. going to be yeah. a huge that too. thing coming down the pipe. Um, you know, just being able to augment the information that you're getting and, and, uh, you know, have, um, you know, more access to what's going on around you and perhaps even, uh, you know, safety protocols to say, Hey, there's a bus coming, you know, things like that can be pretty powerful for people. Um, all right. Well, if you have, uh, ideas for, for episodes, things that you would like to hear about, uh, maybe it's a technology that you're hot on that you think would be really cool to have, uh, someone talk about, um, you know, maybe it's an organization that you're, uh, passionate about, uh, please, uh, email us. Uh, we have an email address. It is atbanterpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and you can also contact us in a variety of other ways. You can. You can go to our website, which is www.atbanter.com. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. We have a Twitter feed. Hey, did we get any action on Google Plus? You know, we didn't. I don't know. It's weird. I, I don't. I don't understand what's going we said, on with Google. We said Plus. last episode that if we didn't get uh, any action on Google Plus in a week, we were going to nix the Google Plus account. That's true. It might be gone. It yeah. might be. It might be the last casualty of 2016. Could be. Could be. From everybody here, which is me and Steve at the moment, because Ryan's got the day off. He's got the week off. He's got the week off. Lucky bum. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. We, so, should talk, we should talk about Ryan behind his back, seeing as we've got this opportunity. We should. We don't know for sure that he'll listen to this episode, but we should put it in as an Easter egg. Something. Let's make something up about Ryan and spread it as a rumor. Mm, I like this idea. Okay, Ryan Flurry. Let's see. Can't be anything illegal. I know. That's that's what's holding me up. That's why the yeah. big pause. I was like, yeah. Mm, yeah. no, that's illegal. <clears throat> no, that's illegal. Uh, that's illegal in Texas. Uh, <laughs> nothing's illegal in texas <laughs> ryan flurry is a vegan oh yeah 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 that's good i like that okay ryan flurry is vegan and is desperately seeking vegan recipes oh he is so please please email ryan any vegan recipes that you know even if it's like okay uh Vegan carrots. One, <laughs> eat a carrot. <laughs> Two, profit. <laughs> That's right. You know, well, he that was. Remember, we had Alexis from Stump Kitchen. That's right. The the yeah, the yeah. vegan. She's way into vegan. That's it was his idea. Yeah. So clearly, yeah, he's got a proof, soft spot for vegans. Yeah. Proof positive that Absolutely. he's a vegan. Yeah. So yeah, send in all those vegan recipes. Um, I don't know where we were. Out. I where I was at. <laughs> we were, I we were ending somehow. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So for everybody here, 
at AT Banter and Aroga Technologies across the country. We would just like to say Happy New Year. So I, throughout 2016, have been Rob Minot. And I have remained Steve Barkley through all of 2016. And Ryan Flurry. We don't know. He's a vegan. He buggered off at the end of 2016. That's right. Uh, thanks, everybody. This podcast has been brought to you by Aroga Technologies. Visit Aroga Technologies online at www.aroga.com. That's A-R-O-G-A dot com. Music provided by bensound.com.